0: I've been thinking uh, a lot lately about uh, driving. Um, and I'll tell you why. Uh, part of it is because I have a 15-year-old and a 16-year-old that live in my house, uh, one with a permit and one that's now been driving for almost a year. And so suddenly when you think about putting your kids on the road at uh, young ages and as they first start to drive, suddenly I think you're more aware of those things and thinking of that. Uh, some of you know, uh, I mentioned it a few weeks back, then, uh, five weeks ago or so I was in a car wreck. A Guy pulled out right in front of me and so had a pretty severe car. Wreck. Everybody was fine, but pretty serious car wreck. And so the, co- the confluence of those things suddenly I find that I'm thinking about driving more and when I get on the road and you think about what's happening around you and then, uh, I just had, uh, with my insurance that comes up every few years you can do defensive driving course that, that lowers your rates. And so I just did that and so I'm reading all these statistics and all these things and thinking about uh driving a lot in different ways. And I'll tell you, it's uh, kind of scary if you think about it. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I'm driving right here, right out by the church or right by my house, and I get on 400 and I pull up. Uh, I'm, I'm driving along. Somebody's driving real slow, and I get up next to them, and they have both hands. They're driving with their elbows, and both hands are texting. I can't tell me how many times I see that. I'm like, whoa! What are they doing? Like, I actually, I just read in the defensive driving thing that when you text and drive, you don't watch the road for five seconds. Think about that, right? Close your eyes and count to five, and think about flying down the road in a four or five thousand pound machine, and you're not watching the road for five seconds. That's kind of scary, right? Uh, and you can tell why. I mean, I don't have to explain that to you, right? If your attention is divided it can be detrimental pretty quickly right things coming at you and what's happening and if you're not paying attention you don't have your full attention there uh, that can be pretty scary and so I've been thinking about that a little bit and it it came to mind even this week because of Jesus's words that he says here at the end of Luke chapter 9 because Jesus has some pretty clear words about following him And doing so fully, giving him your full attention in everything you do and all that you are. And basically what he says is there can be detrimental effects if you don't. And I was thinking about that analogy there of what Jesus tells us and what he is calling us to today. That if you take your eyes off of him or instead of letting him be Lord over your life in every area, you hold a lot of things back. How quickly that can go out of control and the problems that that can cause. And so as we continue in our series, what we've been doing is we've just been calling it Following Jesus. We're, we're looking at Jesus' life in chronological order, kind of through the whole of his ministry. We are well into the third year of his ministry now, and we're going to come to this text at the end of Luke chapter 9. And the way I want us to look at it is first I want us just to consider Jesus' focus here. Right? If we're seeking to follow him in all things, we want to see in what he's doing and where his focus is. So I want us to consider first Jesus' focus Then secondly, there's a couple things that it brings to our attention in this text of what happens when that attention is divided. What are the outworkings of when we don't continue to fix our eyes on him? When we don't have undivided attention on Jesus as Lord and Savior in our life, what happens when our attention is divided? And then lastly, how do we embrace more fully who Jesus is and what that looks like? How do we continue to focus all things on him, letting him be Lord over every area of our life, right? So... Consider his focus, what happens when our focus wanders, and then how do we embrace that more fully? So let's just start with Jesus' focus here and what we see him doing in our text. And so verse 51 says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And so where we are uh, kind of in the, the chronology of Jesus's life, we're probably five to six months out from the crucifixion. We're, we're getting to kind of that last stage we're, we're squarely halfway through year three, which we often refer to as the year of opposition, because there's lots of people kind of rising up and questioning Jesus and stepping up and kind of asking questions. A lot of people are still very excited about who he is and what he's doing and what they think he's going to do. But we're moving closer now to the, to the cross in his life. And so what you start to see here, uh, in his third year, uh, we actually looked at this just a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 16. And then right after that, Jesus starts to talk about his death pretty frequently now. He starts to tell his disciples that I'm going to be taken by the religious leaders and they're going to take me and I'm going to die and I'm going to raise again. And he starts saying these things. And as we looked at a few weeks ago, the first time he says it to Peter, he says, that'll never be you. Pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him and tells him no way. But Jesus continues to say this and he's continuing to kind of narrow his focus, if you will. He's saying it more and more frequently now as we go through this. And so here he is saying this over and over again. And uh, I I say narrowing his focus because of the frequency with which he's saying it. But it's nothing new. If you follow through the Gospels, Jesus talks about his death coming all the way through. It's, it's right there at the very beginning. If you go back to where we were about this time last year, when we started in this series, we're in John chapter 2, Jesus' first miracle, uh, changing uh, water into wine. And in that miracle, his mother tells him, kind of nudging him to do something about the issue at hand. And he turns and says to her, my hour has not yet come. And right there at the beginning of his ministry, if you follow that through John's gospel, that hour comes up over and over. And Jesus will say, it's, my hour's not yet come, my hour's not here, it's getting near, my hour is now here. And if you follow that all the way through, he's talking about his death. And you see that in John's gospel. And so Jesus is always focused, always having kind of on the horizon of what he's come to do and laying his life down. But what we see here is it starts to kind of narrow and he starts to say it more frequently. He starts to continue to bring this up. Uh, I, I like the way the New American Standard says it, right? We use the ESV here, word for word translation. New American Standard also is a very good translation of the Bible. But the New American Standard says he resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem, right? That he is now kind of locked in on this is what's coming, and so he starts to set his face towards Jerusalem and it's becoming more and more focused. And so I want us just to consider for just a second why that's the case, why his focus is so always oriented towards the cross, even in those very first chapters of John, right at the beginning of his ministry, that's always there. And so when you start to think about everything that Jesus says and the way in which he says it and the way in which he's coming, he says he came to serve, not to be served. Came to lay down his life as a ransom for many at the very core of all Jesus came to do and everything he's doing at the center of that is always the self sacrificial love that is going to end with him laying his life down. You see that all the way through, all the way through the gospels that he's going to come to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. But there's a problem that starts to arise here is his, is his, uh, focus is narrowing all of a sudden there's opposition that seems to also kind of grow uh, in equal opposites of that. And so here, like what you have in verse 53. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And I want you to think about why this is such a problem. Right? I mean, think back to what Peter did when Jesus said, I'm going to die. And he pulled him aside and said, that'll never be. Right? We've, I've pointed this out for the last year but everybody's view of the Messiah is a conquering king that's going to come and overthrow governments. And Jesus is going, no, 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 blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. right? I, I came to lay down my life. I came not to to be served, but to serve. And he's he's correcting that over and over. But all of a sudden you're seeing the rise of, of how uh, far apart the world is and the way they're thinking this is going to go and what Jesus is saying and the way he's telling us it's going to go. And you can see the... The tension building. And you see it even in this text here. I think a good way to think about it, uh, I read a book many years ago by a theologian, a guy's name is is Greg Boyd, and he talks about the kingdom of God in the world versus the kingdom of the world. And by the way, I'm always careful to name check people. I disagree with Greg Boyd on a lot of things. But this particular book was really good in talking about the way in which the world operates in the way God's kingdom operates and the way he defined it is, he says, Jesus comes with this power under and the world focuses on power over power under versus power over. I'll, I'll give you the way he defines it. Right. He says the world operates on power over, which is like we're going to lead a revolution. And we're going to overthrow the government and we're going to take it by force and we're going to make these things happen. Right. We're going to we're going to raise up an army and we're going to go take on the Romans and we're going to get them out of power and we're going to do this thing. And that's the way everybody's operating around Jesus. That's the way they're thinking. This could be the Messiah. This could be it. He'll get us better taxes, right? A lower tax rate and we'll have more freedom and all these things will happen. And so people are thinking in a very worldly kind of way, but the way in which they're operating is this power over. But Jesus comes saying, no, 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 it's power under. I've come to serve, not to be served. I've come to lay my life down. And so when you start to think about the way he talks about his kingdom rather than the way the world talks about kingdoms, it's very, very different. His entire ministry is this power under, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. The way in which he talks, the way in which he calls his disciples to follow him. And you see this kind of uh, dichotomy growing And the tension growing, right? They're wanting Jesus to be this one thing, and he's not that thing. And he continues to be more and more bold in the way in which he's talking about it. And he continues to redirect them. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Right? If you would come after me, you have to die to yourself and lay your life down. And all these things that he keeps saying, he keeps telling us it's power under, not power over. But the world has a very hard time grasping that. And so as it's so different and as he narrows his focus and as he continues to push back on this, you see this opposition growing, right? It says here they didn't receive him. They're not hearing it. His face is now set towards Jerusalem in this way and his focus is narrowing and people are getting upset over that. You even see some of the misunderstandings in the second half of this passage in verses 57 to 62. Right? People are calling out to him and he's saying, follow me. People are kind of given excuses as they go and kind of back and forth. There's lots of bold statements, but then Jesus is kind of redefining the way they think about it. Right. Like like the first person there in uh, verse 57 says, I will follow you wherever you go. Right. And they're thinking power over. This guy's about to be the king. I'm with the king. I'm with the Messiah that's about to be in power. And Jesus goes, oh, by the way, I'm homeless. Are you sure about that? It doesn't look like the way you think it looks, right? He says, the birds of the air have nests and the foxes have holes, but I have nowhere to lay my head. He's saying, I don't have a home right now. And what you think of that is coming in my kingdom and what you're going to get temporally in this day, this power over is not what I'm talking about. And so he continues to redirect people in every way and at every step. And so I want you to think about why he's doing this, why this is so important why this is so the non-negotiable heart of Jesus that his face is set on laying his life down. And the answer is it's the only way that his kingdom will ever actually come in full. And he knows this. And it's because he loves his creation. It's because he is good. It's because he is just that he's not going to settle for adopting the way in which the world works of this power over, but it's going to be this power under. It has to be Him coming and living the life that we haven't lived. And dying the death that we deserve and gloriously raising again. And you know why? Because otherwise we'd be hopelessly lost. If Jesus came and He adopted this power over and He said, follow me and He overthrew the Roman government and they installed Him as King, guess what? We're all still in our sins. We're all still hopelessly lost. And because he loves, he doesn't do that. Paul says it so well in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, I deliver to you as a first importance what I also received: that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he says in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So Jesus doesn't embrace power over and overthrowing governments and the way the world works because he knows that we would be eternally lost if he does. And so his face is set towards Jerusalem. It's set on the cross. It's set on him coming to lay his life down for us. And this is his focus. It's exactly what he's doing here. Now, I want us to think for a second how we miss that, how they miss it here. Right here in this text, we've been saying all the way through the series, as we work our way through the Gospels, Jesus is talking about his kingdom and what it means for him to be Messiah and what that will look like. And pretty much everyone else has got a different category for him, right? This power over and overthrow governments and all these things. And so there's always this misunderstanding. You continue to see it here with his disciples. They still don't fully get it. And so if you look at what happens, verse 53, but the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and they went on their way to another village. Right. So he comes in to the village and it says his face is set on Jerusalem. And so they reject him. They they're not excited about him being there. Uh, We've kind of established, I think, what that looks like. Right. I mean, his face set towards Jerusalem is he is continuing to really challenge people in the way that they're trying to press him into what they want him to be versus what he has come to be. And they're trying to fit him into that. Uh, You see those uh, people saying, I'll I'll lay down my life and I'll follow you. And he says some pretty harsh things. does he not there in verses 57 to 62? Uh, People are, I I think it tells us they go on to the next place. But as they go along, this is what he was saying. And so I think it's safe to assume that he was saying similar things as he came in and they didn't receive him because his face is set towards Jerusalem. And so he's saying these things and he's talking to them about it. And they're saying, Lord, I'll follow you wherever. And he's really pushing back on them. He's he's really pushing them to, to lay down their life, to give everything to follow him. Right? When they're making excuses, he quickly fires back. Like, that's not a good excuse. And we'll talk about their excuses in a second. But he quickly says that. And so you see this kind of growing uh, divide between Jesus and the people around him. And I can almost hear people as his face is set and he's talking about these things. uh, What they might say as he comes. Right. What what we do. What you see James and John doing here. Right. It's kind of like Jesus is telling them, no, and this is the way we're working. And what do they do? It's kind of like, Jesus, I don't think that's going to work. Right. That's that's what we do a lot of times. Hey, Jesus, that's not the way the world really works. Now, we may not say that you may not expressly say to Jesus as you're praying, hey, Jesus, you don't know how this works. But that's the way we operate. A lot of the time. We start to go, well, that's not the way the power over structures of our world works. I can understand that people are excited about Jesus as Messiah and he's coming along and he's saying these things and he's correcting them. And I can hear it now. We don't need a leader that's so moral. We need a leader who will get things done. We need a leader who will overthrow these horrible Romans. They're awful. We need somebody like that. And Jesus continues to push them away on that. He continues to say laser focus on his mission of the cross. And so it's so easy for us to get off when that happens. It's so easy for us to be divided in our affections so what you see happen here in verse 54, when James and John saw it, right? The people rejecting him, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Right? Blessed are the peacemakers. Hey, Jesus, you want us to take these people out? Right. What they're doing is they're embracing the power over of the world. They're forgetting everything Jesus says. This doesn't seem to be working in the way that we anticipated that would be working. So, Jesus, should you just kind of do it the way we're telling you should do it now? Giving James and John credit. Right. don't want to be too hard on them. I feel like sometimes I read that and go, what boneheads? And then I think that probably would have been me. I probably would have been James or John right they're they're looking at the old testament and they're thinking about the way god worked at different times maybe thinking back to elijah the prophet and different things and going do you just want to consume them and they're they're operating out of faith in their limited understanding but they're missing a big piece and they're becoming divided in the way that they think and so they're starting to embrace the opposite of what jesus is saying let's do power over let's get rid of these people that are not with us If they're not with us, let's let's wipe them out now. But is that what we're called to be? I mean, Jesus turns and rebukes them. I'm going to tell you, we do this a lot. It's easy for us to become divided in the same way. We're so inundated with what the world says and the way our world operates that we start to function and think in the same ways. I think sometimes we put our hope uh, in places that are opposite of what God calls us to. Sometimes we embrace political power rather than Jesus. We go, this doesn't work, right? Jesus's ideas are good, but I don't see how that's going to work in our current situation. So we embrace power over. I'm going to put my hope in a politician that's going to get things done for me. It's going to seize the power and make it happen and do it the way I want it to happen. And so we start to do the opposite of everything that Jesus is telling us. And in essence, we really do say, Jesus, this isn't the way the world works. That's very idealistic and that's a good idea, but I don't think that actually works. It's not pragmatic. And so we start to embrace the power structures of the world. I was reading just this week, I heard this real interesting quote from Chuck Colson. If you don't know who Chuck Colson is, he was a career politician. Uh, He ended up in the cabinet of President Richard Nixon he was instrumental. He was right in the center of the Watergate uh, scandal. He actually ended up going to jail for it. He was one of the inner kind of cabinet with President Nixon. Ended up going to jail, goes to jail for the Watergate scandal. After that, uh, he becomes a Christian. Through all that, he becomes a Christian and he starts these incredible ministries, uh, prison ministries. Three or four of them that are still going today. These great ministries has a heart of it, turns into a great evangelist and all these things. But his career, his life was in politics. And listen to what he says about embracing this power over. He says, if we've learned anything in recent decades, it's that we should not roll out heavy-handed political movements that recklessly toss around God and country cliches and scare off our secular neighbors. Our goal is not to grab power and impose our views. Instead, we should act through principled persuasion and responsible participation. And so listen to what he says, but also what he doesn't say. He says, be involved. You should be involved. Right? He says, uh, responsible participation through uh, principled persuasion. And that's a good way to say it. He's not telling you don't be involved. He's not saying check out. But what he is saying is don't you dare embrace power over. Don't think that real change comes from forcing people through power. That's not the gospel. Jesus came showing us what it looks like to be power under, to serve and to love and to care for people and to walk through, to proclaim the good news of who God is. And that is how hearts are changed. But here, as Jesus goes along the way and he's saying these things. Even his own disciples are like, let's just get rid of them. And it's such a temptation of the sinfulness of our heart to embrace this power over because that's the way we think our world works. I'll give you a silly example, but I think it makes the point. It's it's practical, but it's kind of silly. Uh, I just finished coaching my youngest son, Quinn's basketball team, for the last six weeks. And one of the biggest struggles I have with power over versus power under is officials. Right? When I'm coaching and I'm dealing with basketball and officials, and suddenly you've spent all this time working on it, and sometimes you walk into the gym and you feel like you're, you're they're dealing with you unjustly. They're calling all sorts of things. Whatever, and you have a choice to make. And full confession, I've done it both ways. I'm just going to tell you, I've done it both ways. Probably more times than not, I've embraced power over. What are you, an idiot? Can't you see that? He just fouled them, right? What's wrong with you? What are you looking at? And you start to tell him and you're like, he just got clobbered right in front of me. How can you miss that? And you know what happens? As soon as I embrace power over, do what I'm telling you to do, it's over. That ref is out to get you. They're like, (laughs) try that again, right? And so over the years, and, and I'll tell you, I still do that. There's times I've done that. Get frustrated and you say that and you go that way. But then there's times when I've called a timeout and I've walked over to a ref and I go, hey, what did you call? I missed that. I didn't see what he did. Can you tell me what he did so I can coach them how not to do that? And they go, oh, yeah, he pushed them. They go, okay, thank you. Or you go to him and you say, hey, uh, we've been working really hard on taking a charge. And it looked like to me he got there, but obviously he didn't. What does he need to do next time? And they go, oh, just make sure his feet are set. And I go, okay, we'll work on it. And then the next time it happens, guess what? It's a charge. And I'm not saying you're manipulating him. I'm not saying you're not being genuine, but you're purposely deciding that I'm not going to embrace power over, but I'm going to be gracious. And you know what? It works. I don't know if you've ever had that happen where you go to someone and you take that. Even uh, I say this in marriage counseling all the time. If you and your spouse are are, are arguing over something and you go to them and you think they're 90% wrong and maybe 10% of it's your fault. So go to your spouse and own your 10% and ask for forgiveness. Right? Instead of you are doing it wrong and what's wrong with you and why are you doing that? You go, this is my part and I'm sorry. And all of a sudden, it, it le- grace changes us. It actually works. That's the way God changes our hearts when we come into to uh, encounter his grace in our own lives. And so it's so easy for us to miss it and our attention to be divided and to jump into that power over. And it's exactly what's happening here with Jesus' disciples. I'm going to make this happen and we're going to tell them and we're going to call down fire and we're going to get rid of these people. And Jesus says, no. And he rebukes them. And so they go on the way and they come into this next town and all these people start yelling out all these different things. But I think we see here in the second half of this passage another way in which we miss it. Another way in which our attention becomes divided. So verse 57, he's going along the road and someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head to another. He said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to them, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit ...for the kingdom of God. And so he says a lot of things there that seem pretty tough. Right? People are like, I'm, I'm with you everywhere. He's like, eh, maybe not. Right? He, he's kind of calling them on it. He also says some pretty hard things there, particularly there uh, in verse 59... ...when he says, follow me. And the guy says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And he goes, no. Let the dead bury the dead. And you go, Whoa! Did this guy's father just die and Jesus is saying you can't even go to the funeral? I don't think so. Most scholars believe that what the guy is saying is let me wait until my dad dies and I get my inheritance and I get everything in order and everything sorted out and then I'll come follow you. And Jesus is going, no, it doesn't work like that. He says, you come now. You come and follow me now right where you are in all things. And so what he's doing here is he's calling us to make him Lord of our lives in every way. But what you see and I think of all three of these is people trying to fit Jesus into the margins. I'll get to it when I have time. I'll give my life to serving you once I have my retirement in order, right? That's what the second guy's really saying. The first one's like, I'll follow you everywhere. And Jesus goes, oh, you realize I don't have a home. And it's like, ooh, it doesn't tell us for sure. But the the connotation seems to be that they don't just follow him everywhere, given that he doesn't have a home. Or even in the last one, let me first say farewell to those at my house. And he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So does that mean you can't say goodbye? It's the same thing I think Jesus says all the way through, right? Unless you hate your father, mother, brother, you can't be my disciple. Right it's a comparison. Your life should be so devoted to me that everything else comes secondary. But what you see in the second half of this text is that every single one of these people are divided in their focus. They're trying to fit Jesus into the margins to when it makes sense to them. It's kind of like trying to drive while you're texting. Suddenly it's not that easy. And there's a lot of things that you're missing that could be really detrimental and important because you're not keeping the main thing, the main thing. And we all do this at different times. And so I would just ask you, are you doing that right now? Where in your life is things overcrowding who Jesus is and what he calls you to be? Is it your career and your job and retirement and all these things? And they've so taken over that your life that Jesus is a second thought. Maybe he's not a thought at all except for an hour on Sunday morning. But that's not what he's calling us to. He's calling us to be center of our lives and everything. So how do we embrace that? How do we not fall for power over, slip into the way the world works? How do we not move Jesus to the margins? And there's a couple things that he says here right at the end. And we'll end with this that I think is helpful. The last there is verse 62, where he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus, being the greatest teacher, whoever was, he always was using illustrations that people understood and knew. Right When you yoked a large animal and you begin to plow for crops, if your attention was divided, it was a disaster. Right. A great big animal is moving. You're trying to keep this thing straight. You start looking away. Suddenly you're going to make your lines aren't going to be straight. It's going to be a mess. It's actually if Jesus is the greatest teacher and he's hitting on where people are. I think the modern day equivalent might be texting while you're driving. It's pretty scary how easy it is to cause issues. And that's what he's saying there is you need complete allegiance to me. And I want you to think about everything we've said all the way through this series when we think about who Jesus is. At the very beginning, we said he's the logos. He's the divine revelation of who, what is true, who God is, that when Jesus speaks, that that's what's true. And if that's who Jesus is, that he is the God of the universe, right? I I heard this great analogy uh, years ago. I read it and I kind of stumbled on some notes that I had written down about it years ago, but I like the way they said it. You know how big our universe is? Have you ever tried, people try to help you think about how big it is? Um, from the earth to our sun is 93 million miles, which is in itself a, in a crazy number, right? Like if you were to drive a car 65 miles an hour to the sun, it'd take you uh, 165 years, right? So like we can't even fathom that. But just for a second, imagine that the sun Ninety three million miles away is one sheet of paper thick. Right. So using that scale of sheets of paper, our galaxy is a stack of papers, three hundred and ten miles high. Right. And I I know as I'm saying that, if you really try to think about that, you can't even fathom that. But then our galaxy in the universe is like one grain of sand on all the beaches in the world. And you go now. Now. You can't even like hold that. But then you open and God says the logo speaks and he says, I spoke all that into existence by my word and it's upheld by the power of Jesus's word, right? What other way do you come to Jesus other than savior and Lord of your life? Is there anything that a God that powerful, that is so full of love, that is so good, that is so perfect, that would lay his life down for you, that holds all of that into existence? Does it make any sense to make him uh, your assistant? Does it make any sense to be like, Jesus, I'm going to take 75% of what you say? No. Right when he says you put your hand to the plow and you don't look back. Your focus is on me and all things because that's the only thing that makes sense. If Jesus says who he says he is, if he gloriously raised from the dead, it doesn't make any sense to do anything else. But then the second thing is just counting the cost of where all of it leads. You know, in verse 60, he says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. I think a fair translation at the heart of what he's saying would be leave the spiritually dead to deal with the spiritually dead. You go proclaim the kingdom. He's not saying you can't go to your father's funeral or take care of your family. That's part of what it means to love people well. But what he's saying is, where is your focus in your time and your life and your energy and what you're giving it to? As for you, you go and proclaim the kingdom. And so please hear this. I'm fully convinced of this, although I will tell you I'm a hypocrite because I'm not doing it fully in my own life. But I truly believe anything that you do in the service of God in your life, when you breathe your last breath, there's nothing that you are doing for Jesus' glory that you're going to look back on and be like, man, I wasted my time doing that. Not one. One. But there's going to be a lot of things that we're going to look back on and go, why did I waste so much time on that? Hear Jesus's words. Let the dead bury the dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom. You will never regret it. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of who you are and what you've done for us. We thank you that you call us into a relationship with you. We thank you that we're not saved. Uh, by being perfect but that we are saved because you are perfect that you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves i pray for the areas right now for each one in this room the areas of our heart we're not fully embracing you as lord and savior that you would show us those places where we're holding back in those areas where we're wanting to grab back the reins and take control of our own lives and move you to the margins would you show us those things Would you give us clear direction on how to follow you fully in all things and in all times and in all ways. We thank you that you call us into this and knowing that as we give our lives more fully to you, it only gets better. And so I pray that you would help us to see that fully this morning. And we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.